Welcome to Typically Hazardous. My name is Lara Pulver, and today the creator of this podcast, Hank Fortner, has allowed me to take over the reins and turn the microphone around. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Hank Fortner. Originally from Dayton, Ohio, Hank Fortner is a father, husband, pastor, speaker, photographer, the founder of the charity Adopt Together. He's been described as one of the most compelling speakers and authentic individuals. Hank, welcome to your podcast, Typically Hazardous. <laughs> Thank you. And our adventures in conversation. Where did you get all that information? How did you even find that? Internet. Internet. Yeah. The web. All random chats. Got anything. It. But was any of it wrong? No, no. That's, anything I mean, we missed out? I don't know if I'm the most compelling speaker or whatever it says, but hey. hey it's online. I'll straight, take it. Right? <laughs> if it's on the internet, it's true. So this conversation kind of came about because I had been listening to this podcast, Typically Hazardous, um, and was um, quite inspired by the interesting conversations you were having with inspiring people and what it kind of brought about for me was the question what makes Hank want to have and share these conversations that was kind of the big question when I very first met you that was kind of rolling around in my head but before we kind of go down that road first off I want to know what your tell me about your earliest memories of conversation I like that should we tell people who you are do you need to? Do I sound like a BBC no, newscaster no, right now? No, your, your accent is awesome. You're so cool. I feel like, do we introduce you or no? No, go ahead. Okay. This is about you. Oh, do you want me to just keep moving? Forget, yeah, tell forget. me about okay. your earliest memories of conversation. Okay. Uh, my earliest memories of conversation is driving in the car with my mom. Mm -hmm. I think Our house was very chaotic, as most people know, or as a lot of people know. I We had 36 foster kids over a seven-year period, eight brothers and sisters, and like it's just a lot of people mm. and so I think having conversations in the house was a challenge right so I remember probably the earliest memories would be when I would drive in the car with my mom I would always call shotgun and if I got to sit in the, sit in the front seat mm -hmm. you know, there weren't cell phones there was no one was texting there was no distraction mm -hmm. you were just driving and I could just talk to my mom about anything what I was thinking roughly about. roughly what age was that do you remember I was probably four or five I mean as soon as you're legally allowed to sit in the front seat Right. And if I could, that's when I, I wanted to talk to my mom. And mm -hmm. I remember my mom my mom and dad to me being the most like interesting people. Mm -hmm. Like and I loved I talked to strangers too. I was known for the kid who would literally walk up to like the landscaper or the guy who was trying to fix the pipes and just walk up and be like, Hey, is that your car? What's your I loved I was insanely curious. I was just a weird talk be to anyone. Because child. you were just interested in in what they're up to and curious and yeah just uh, and people they laugh about it to this day because my nephew is very much like that where he literally walks right. up to people with dogs and goes hey how's it going what's your dog can i have your dog what's your dog's like like he's just asking questions and my mom's like that's exactly the kind of kid you were i just remember walking into rooms and being like mm -hmm. i have so many questions for everyone here well i and I, I was always fascinated when adults especially when Maybe married people or, or, or um, you know, family reunion type things where you mm -hmm. don't have a lot in common and you haven't talked in years. Mm -hmm. I was always like, why aren't, well, how are they not talking to each other? There's so much you don't know. But yeah, I don't know if they lost, if they didn't care. I was just so weirded out by awkward silence because I could always feel it. Wow. <laughs> not with, not that I wasn't awkward. I was a very awkward child. Mm. But I just wanted, I had questions. I wanted to know who, where are you so from? So with that amount of people in your house, what was kind of like dining room table or breakfast dinner table conversation like we didn't have one like we didn't ha we had a table but it was right. mostly like a function it was that was everything orbited the table but we never sat down together as a family and ate until i was unless we were out to dinner which right. was at like a wendy's or something like that yeah. we didn't eat at fancy places and so anything any food you consumed between 4 30 p.m and 8 30 p.m mm -hmm. any food you consumed after lunch and before bedtime was dinner Right. And if my mom made it or if you just kind of hustled it out of the cupboards, then that was dinner. Uh -huh. Breakfast was the same way. Anything you ate before lunch was considered breakfast and you just kept moving. So oh, conversation yeah. was very, you know, I would say it was very transactional. It was because we were, a, I mean, when I see those clips mm -hmm. in movies or in TV, TV shows like U571, People on Submarines, <laughs> where they're tightly packed in and it's just they're passing each other and they're handing people things and they're radioing each other. That's to me how it felt like it was diapers and cribs and so a survival like conversations of, in survival. Yeah, just it was like making we're just moving forward and what time is this person going and did you get your schoolwork done and is this the deal and dad's coming home and are these chores done? It was all very 
not a military household because we didn't have the discipline or the cleanliness or right. structure, but it was very, we were on a mission. We were, we were taking care of lots of humans and we were always shorthanded. So it was always the adventure of just getting it done. So was there ever a feeling for you that you weren't heard? Um, in no, that never, type you know, of yeah, kind people of People ask me that sometimes. Like, if you have all these brothers and sisters, are you... I never once felt like my parents, like, didn't acknowledge me enough. Now, mm -hmm. did I not get as much of my parents' attention? Of course. Mm -hmm. But I never felt like I deserved more or never felt like I was shortchanged. For me, it was like, I am get to be a part of this really beautiful thing we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I always felt like my parents made me and my brother and my sister a part of their team, mm -hmm. no matter what they were doing. So... As old as I was, maybe I was six, seven years old, my mom would tell me, here's what we are going to do. Right. Whether it was taking care of kids or whether it was we're going to go to some place or we're going to go on vacation. We're going on vacation and here's what we're doing. It w there was never a separation. I was a, I was a peer with my mom and dad and we were all trying to get this done. Mm -hmm. Whether it was packing the van for our trip to Florida yeah. or cleaning the garage or, we, hey, we're gonna, my, sitting down with my dad, we're going to plant 30 trees. Right, because we're gonna in ten years this property is gonna be amazing, and that's what we're gonna do. And so we. Where did you come age wise? In in. I was the second Canada. oldest. So I was a year and a half younger than my older sister. Right. So my older sister was born when my parents were twenty one, mm -hmm. and I was born when my parents were twenty three, mm -hmm. and then it cascaded down from there. Now my parents are fifty, almost sixty, and they have eleven year olds, two eleven year old kids. And you have kids yourself now. I do. How how has having children changed your kind of perception of the importance of conversation? It's a great question. I think I think I probably repeat, whether purposely or, or accidentally, mm -hmm. I repeat some of the same models. I love getting my three-and-a-half-year-old Cora. She's almost, she'll be four in April. Mm -hmm. I love getting her away from everything because she doesn't have any need for me unless we're playing or doing something. Right. But if I get her alone, all she wants to do is talk. We're in the car, and she's in the car seat, and she literally, if I'm quiet, she'll go, Dad, I can't tell what you're thinking. What are you thinking about? Like my flipping four-year-old. So would you, do you then So think... that is so much fun for me because then I'm asking her what she's thinking and I love getting her alone. In the same way you kind to, of did with your mom. In the same way I did. Mom. I escaped with my mom. So would, do you think, therefore, we're kind of born with like an inherent need to converse? I think so. I think, it's, I think conversation is the tool for the connection. I think we're born with an inherent desire to connect to others. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, that connection can happen. And there's a lot of different ways that happens. But for a lot of people, I think it happens through conversation. Mm -hmm. I converse through knowledge. So I, my friends used to tease me saying when they hadn't seen me, it was going to be a game of 20 questions. Because mm -hmm. I was just consumed. I can't even get through. I can't even talk about what we're going to eat or whatever. I can't move on until you tell me when you bought this house and where, where you're from and what, what you're going to do on your, like I can't, right. even when we started hanging out, I have a hundred more questions for you. Mm -hmm. So for me, the way I connect to people is by knowing things about them, feeling like I know them, feeling like I'm aware of things about their life. My mom, my parents had to teach me to not ask people like how much money they made or right. if they had sex <laughs> with each other. Like, you know, cause I didn't, I just, as a kid, you just naively go, that's how I'll know you. That's how we'll trust each other. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think conversation is a tool. It's the desire for me to connect to people. And when we get to talk, that's how I know. When you tell me, when you answer mm. the questions that kind of burn in my mind. So how does silence feel for you? It's, you know, it's bizarre. I love silence. Just not really around people. So my house kind of reflects my house of growing up. Our mm. house is very, even today I ran home to grab my gear. Yeah. And I've got, our babysitter was there with my youngest daughter. And I pick her up on my shoulders and they had a, she had a friend over like our door is kind of always open and there's always five or six people coming through. Mm -hmm. So our house is always very, very fast. Mm -hmm. But I love silence. I just do silence when I'm alone. Right. So I think the older I've gotten and maybe the more pressure that's on my life, the more projects I'm working on, uh -huh. the more I need alone time. And I get that alone time in weird ways. Sometimes it's by myself smoking cigars and sometimes it's like I washed my car today because I just felt like a little overwhelmed. Like, oh my yeah. gosh, I left a meeting with lots, so many details and I just had to clear my head and I don't almost ever drive with the stereo on mm -hmm. or anything. I just needed, to, I just go, I'm just going to wash my car. It's not dirty. I just needed to be so quiet. So what does it feel like for you if, if you don't have kind of like the backstory of someone to sit down and just be with them? Is, is there an anxiety there for you that of not knowing or is, are you, did you just plow in? Like, that's a great question. I think honestly, 
the way I would answer that is I th I think I just assume that that person uh, either I they don't trust me. I I because I I feel like I I am very and very trusting and very trustworthy. I fight to mm. be very trustworthy. I I echo what Peyton Manning just said about the Super Bowl when they asked him what's he going to miss, and he said I or what's he hope that his legacy is. Mm. His legacy is that he hopes that the people he played with and played against respect him. Mm -hmm. And I just hope that everyone who works with me or knows me in my life would just say I could. I, Hank was a person I could trust. Mm -hmm. I just don't always want to earn that. So for me, there is this strange thing. Like if a person doesn't, if I can't get my questions in, mm -hmm. I just assume, oh, we're just not there yet. They don't trust me. They won't tell me. Like, so you put it onto them. It's it, it's not about you. It's I, more something that you feel that the other person. Yeah, is like I, or maybe we just haven't had that moment or that opportunity. Like this is bizarre, but sometimes I'll see people on a TV show and living in LA, this happens a lot. Mm. You see a person on a TV show and you go, I have so many questions I would ask them if we got dinner. Mm. You know, and I, and I I like project that on their life, but some people they don't want to answer my questions. So I have to I have to learn to be to temper right. that. Like when you do meet somebody who's used to their personal life being very public, they don't want to answer things like how if they're oh. ever lonely or you know they don't so do you, do you think do you think a really important part of conversation is is kind of risking is being brave and bold in in asking questions for sure yeah i think it's risking and sharing that vulnerability thing has been more for me to learn what i used to think is that if a person told me things about their life that's mm. when they trusted me but actually people trust you more when you're vulnerable with them and there, there was a lot. I, I learned very early on the skill of being a conversationalist and asking questions, mm -hmm. knowing and watching how people would come alive, getting to tell stories. Or mm -hmm. I would think to myself, I'm going to ask questions that no one's ever asked this person, mm -hmm. which was always really fun. And even when I would go on dates, they would, they would have a blast because they got to talk about themselves. And did, did the risk ever get you in hot water? Um, I maybe. But I mean, I, I figured out pretty fast what you're not allowed to ask people or what they're willing to. Or I would ask, I would have in my mind this fast algorithm of if they'll answer this question, then they'll answer this next one. But I'm not going to jump straight to this question. Does that make sense? Like mm -hmm. how much information I could get? But I would get always from girls that I would go on dates with that we just don't feel like we know you. And I'm thinking, we've just spent 10 hours talking. How do you feel like you're not known? They talked for 10 hours. And I think that's what I had to learn was that conversation is not just being great at asking questions, but mm -hmm. you have to be vulnerable and you have to share. For me, that was a big part of the mm -hmm. of the risk that mm -hmm. I still struggle with. I still struggle with figuring out how much do I share with myself because I assume people don't want to know that information about me. I'm, I'm still always shocked when people want to hear me talk, like speak. What, is, what, what type of topics or subjects do you avoid thinking that people don't want to know that? I don't know. Like, so I just, I just, like I've just ran into this guy named Cal. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know his last name. Cal Fassbender, maybe. I don't know. I just think <laughs> Michael's it, brother. Yeah, Michael's brother. <laughs> Michael's has the coolest last name ever. It, I hope it's real. But Cal uh, was a writer for GQ, and I just bumped into him mm -hmm. uh, having breakfast at this bagel shop in Beverly Hills after the, on, this, on the way to the shoot I was on. Mm -hmm. So I'm on my way there. We run into him. I had just seen him give a talk about interviewing mm -hmm. and about the art of asking questions. Right. And I walk up to him, and I said, You're, are you Cal? Because mm -hmm. I couldn't tell it was a dark room where he spoke on this boat. Mm -hmm. And I said, are you Cal? And he said, uh, yeah. I said, did you give a talk at mm -hmm. this thing called Summit? Did you talk about conversation? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, that literally changed my life. Like that session changed my life. He's like, oh, thanks. And then I just shut down. And I was like, all, what I wanted to say was, it's changed. Every time I interact with my wife now, I think of three or four different questions and how to ask her things Mm -hmm. that are not transactional and are not a part of it. It changes the way I hang out with my friends. It changes the way I enter every podcast. Like it has changed everything. I just assume he doesn't want to know that. And then I walk away thinking, why didn't I tell him that? Why? Because why? Mm. I just stopped like, oh, it changed my life. I just mm. assumed that's all he wanted to know. But he had three or four follow-up questions. And I thought, oh, man. I. And then we got interrupted because he, you know, he had to go. So I, I don't know. There's some level inside my brain that just thinks that people would get bored if I talk but love speaking. You know? That's so interesting because my first interaction with you was here in Los Angeles, hearing you speak down at, in, in Mosaic at the church. And um, I remember one of the first um, times I heard you speak, you asked any married couples in the room to stand mm -hmm. up and acknowledge what role models they were within our society in a world where we don't, um, well, we we don't seem to respect marriage enough mm -hmm. or or um we don't speak enough about morals and and you know ethic behavior etc cetera, etc cetera. um and your conversation with us that day me being someone in the audience provoked 
so many conversations with me and my husband wow, in the cool. same way that you're describing listening to, to Cal speak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what do you think, or who do you think actually, other than Cal that you mentioned, have been great conversationalists and, and why do you think they have been? Yeah, that's great. I'm, I mean, in just in the world or in the universe yeah, that people well, would know? Yeah, that, that have affected you in the same way you kind of just described with Cal. I mean, I think my mom was that first person. My mom mm -hmm. is really good at asking questions. And actually, there's a uh, psychologist that I'm a huge fan of. Everyone loves her now, Esther Perel. Right. And she said that when you're raised primarily by your mother as a primary parent, you're more emotionally intelligent because she won't say, what'd you do today? And let you get away with, I went to school. Mm-hmm. She's going to ask follow-ups. And I think my mom was that person mm -hmm. for me initially. I think other people who are really good, Larry King is obviously like the, he's the king mm -hmm. of those kinds of conversation and asking questions. And I love mm -hmm. how, I love how he's able to kind of ask direct questions while mm -hmm. still letting the person have respect. And you feel like you're Larry's friend. When right. you listen to him talk to someone else, you feel like you're Larry's friend. He's, he's incredible. So I think there's, People like that. I think it's always what's interesting about even a person like Oprah is mm -hmm. people were calling her like the greatest communicator of our generation or the best female communicator in the world. But her primary thing she did was ask questions mm -hmm. in a way that still moved people in a direction. But I, I just find her a fascinating conversationalist. I think Ellen is another person. Mm -hmm. So I think the, that context or that format of having a guest on and asking questions mm -hmm. in a way I, I learned from watching my mom watched Oprah or my friends watched Oprah and I remember watching her show and learning how to ask questions by the way that she asked questions and guided a conversation through her curiosity, it seemed. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, it feels like many kind of talk shows, um, the interview is normally revolved around what someone needs to promote or mm -hmm. sell or what's yeah, to talk totally. about or, or whatever it is. They might have a book out. Um, when I grew up, kind of like late 80s, early 90s, back in the UK, there were phenomenal interviewers that I remember you felt like you really got to know a person through wow. an interview rather than just the project that they were working on. Yeah, right. Why do you think that's changed? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. For me, I, it, it, and I did have that moment, I was a guest in the audience, mm. or I was in the audience, I was like, whatever, I stood in line to wait to go to a, to, to go to a David Letterman show. Right. And then bizarrely, very bizarrely, uh, they ask people in line, you know, does anybody have any stupid human tricks? And I'm like, <laughs> I think I'm a senior in college at the time. I was like, yeah, sure, I do. He's like, what, what can you do? I said, I can be a gorilla. I have this gorilla thing I do. So mm -hmm. I like did the gorilla and everyone in line started laughing. Right. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. What do you do? I was like, well, I'm in college still, but I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, here's a pastor who can do a gorilla. So I'm like, I'm in. Sold. So the next day I get to be on the David Letterman show and David introduces me and does this <laughs> hilarious thing and it was really fun and I got to talk to him but I got to be backstage all day mm -hmm. all these people are on Ellen was actually on that show so I got to meet her and right. there's all these people there but every single person I remember thinking oh all these people are here because they're promoting something mm -hmm. in my weird naive mind I just thought that the producers were sitting around going you know who'd fun who'd be fun to have on the show let's get Ellen on the show but Ellen was promoting this new thing she was doing and she just won an Emmy for the daytime like Everyone was promoting something, and I, I actually spoke to Biff, uh, who's, you know, David Letterman's person, mm -hmm. and Biff was like, yeah, everybody here, everyone is here at Hakka thing. He, he felt like they had lost this sense of sitting around going, who would be an extraordinary guest? Mm -hmm. It was always about whether a person was promoting something, and maybe that's what brought well-known people out of hiding. I don't know. I just, mm. I feel like, I mean, not to sound cliche, but it feels like it's about money. Right. It's about, you know, different people and PR people or whoever controls who those guests are. Mm -hmm. They're just pushing whoever it is that they can promote and mm -hmm. it becomes about the gig. So what's mm -hmm. funny and what's not. How do you think with with our use of like technology and cell phones and iPads, et cetera, and texting and email, how do you think that's affected the, the art or importance of conversation? Yeah, you know, I, d I take a counter. I know like there's so many people who are like, put the phones down and don't use technology and that's a getting in the way of human connection. I mm -hmm. fundamentally disagree mm -hmm. just from like the base of who I am as a person who grew up in a very small town that was far away from everything. Mm -hmm. The idea that I can stay in touch with people around the world. I felt so isolated in Ohio. I used to right. run to my car. People would say that I had like anxiety issues, which I did also, <laughs> but that wasn't one of them. Separate that, issue. <laughs> that was just because I had 
I just always felt like I'm missing something that's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And I most certainly was. I was in like a small suburb of a country town mm -hmm. that wasn't connected. We, I didn't have a cell phone until I graduated college. Like mm -hmm. it just wasn't a part of what we're doing. So the ability for me to put my thoughts in letter form, I mean, I'm writing a letter through text messages. Mm -hmm. It's just extraordinary. That's so fun for me. How long would it take for me to write a letter to someone, like for me to be able to do emails and text messages, it was always said for years before phones and stuff were a big thing mm -hmm. that writing a letter was more intimate than t having a conversation or calling a person on the phone. So now that I can send that to your phone and it happens immediately, how is that less intimate than us having a phone call? Like I, uh, I feel like I can put more things in words better mm -hmm. and more clear and more succinctly over text than I can if you and I talk over the phone. Is there a, an element though, like, gr like if you think about growing up, if if I am mean to you, mm -hmm. your eyes and your body language yes. and your and your yes. verbal language will tell me that I've done something wrong. Right. And then I then learn the boundaries of of communicating and connection sure. because of that. So if I'm texting you, is this some level do you think of people then not taking responsibility for their actions or being able to put stuff out there without consequence? Yeah, totally. I do think it gives bullies tools. Right. But I would say that all of the technology, it's just a uh, its a tool and a resource for whatever it is you're going to do with it. Mm. So for me, I love having lots of people in my life. Mm. And this gives me the ability to have lots of people in life on different continents, in different time zones. And I can FaceTime at any moment of any day mm. as someone in a different time zone. That to me is like, it, is just amazing. It, but uh, from the bullying side, even that's, I don't think we're shortchanging kids' development either. Because I could still text something. I know it's mean. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the, I think you whether you don't respond or another person responds or someone verbally tells you, the fabric of that relationship still exists, even if it's entirely digital. Because there still is something there. So if I'm being mean and I'm being a bully, and maybe the technology gives me the power to do it, mm -hmm. I'm still fundamentally connected to w what I'm doing, to my belief. So you're talking more like about an energy in, yeah, in that sense. for sure. It's still there, and it still came out of me the same way, and it might have hit me a different way. Mm -hmm. I think there's more opportunity maybe for misunderstanding, but you can definitely definitely feel it. I still think it affects kids. It does give kids the tools to bully more, which mm -hmm. needs to be monitored and to pay attention to by mm -hmm. adults. But I love technology for, this, for, the, for its capacity to keep me in touch with people I love, mm -hmm. and it makes it easier for me to be in Moldova or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm in Australia and I'm FaceTiming my daughter from a, I'm on a beach and she's on a beach somewhere else. And it's like, this is awesome. But how would you feel, for example, if you were sitting around your dining room table, ready to eat lunch or whatever, and would you be okay with Cora having an iPad? Oh yeah. See that? Okay. So that, that would, that's annoying. Um, I know you said you didn't grow up with a huge amount of kind of yeah. around the table conversation in that way. But even my, for my wife and I, I mean, the, the, we always... We always warn each other, what she did to me the other night when mm -hmm. we went on a date. She's like, I just want to be clear, this right here, pointing at my cell phone, yeah. this is not happening while we're at dinner. Right. I was like, oh, yeah, totally cool. Totally. So I totally, I think it can get in the way, but at the same time, um, yeah, I, 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 think, I think I would probably slap that hand down. There's nothing that can replace two people sitting across a kitchen table having a conversation. Mm -hmm. But the technology gives us the capacity that this conversation will be heard by thousands and thousands of people. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? So I guess that's yeah. why I, I lean on it. I don't think it's, I think it's a tool to be used. And just like any tool, it can be used in the wrong right. spaces, in the wrong moments. Yeah. Right. On my, if I'm on a date with my wife and I'm looking at my phone a lot, it's going to be a, it's mm. going to be a bad ending mm. of a date. <laughs> yeah. T tell me how important is it for you to, um, to converse with loved ones, with your wife, with mm. with your children, and obviously, before your children could even speak, you know, on yeah, on what level was that connection verbal, and and how how did yeah, it's a great you approach that question. And when you say converse, do you mean words out of mm -hmm. my mouth, or you mean texting and phone calls and stuff? No letters, like actually say yeah, words. Actually. Super important. Yeah, and if someone is not talking to me, that's probably when I get the most anxious. Like if my wife is being quiet, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh man, something's, you know, you get that like, mm, something's not going on, right? But mm -hmm. for my daughters, I read a lot of books beforehand. Mm -hmm. And it's, this is a big issue in the world with the family unit is a child's brain needs to hear, it's thousands, I forget what the f total number is, but it's somewhere, somewhere like 2,500 to 3,500 words a day. Mm -hmm. That's a minimum that they should hear. 
Well, if you have a lower income family where their parents are not in place or their parents are not there or mm -hmm. dad is off working or they're trading and the adults are not in the room to speak to one another, that child doesn't hear it. So their IQ is lower. So their capacity for the English language is lower. Mm -hmm. So I was determined that being a person who speaks for a living and mm -hmm. says words that I was going to say words constantly to my daughters. So before my daughters could speak, they probably were overwhelmingly uh, communicated to. Even my my first daughter, Cora, we I would talk to her about what I was doing constantly. I'm mm -hmm. changing your diaper right now. She's like 12 hours old. I'm changing your diaper. I'm putting this on your hand. This is called lotion. This is I'm just speaking words to mm -hmm. her because that was the coaching that I got. And she now is like one of the most articulate three-and-a-half-year-olds you'll ever meet. And I think part of that is that she's in conversation and mm -hmm. she's learning how to engage that way. I always make sure that my wife and I are talking, that they're hearing enough words. So it's super mm -hmm. important to me to even say things mm -hmm. to people. The trouble I get into is now I talk a lot. And so sometimes um, me telling my wife how my day went is not what she, in her mind, what a conversation is. Mm -hmm. But me asking thoughtful questions about what she's up to or what happened to her is a better art form. So I do still have to find that balance. Has anything ever left you speechless? Left me speechless? Yeah, I think lots of things do. But my form of, I, I, I have non, or I have verbal pauses <laughs> that you could probably hear if you listen back through this podcast. Like, <laughs> I have verbal pauses or I just say words. I also have like, I can just say stuff and words will just come out of my mouth. My way of being speechless is repeating myself. Uh -huh. So if you ever hear me give a talk, I'm giving all, all my all of my weaknesses away. If you ever hear me give a talk and you hear me circle again, it means that I lost my way. Right. I mean, or that I got stuck. Or that I'm not sure what to say next. Because I, I'll, I'll loop. My wife always says, you circled. And I'm like, yeah, because I, got, I, got, I hit a dead end. But, I didn't, but I didn't to, know what was next. for Hank to just sit there for a second and take a nonverbal pause and maybe not know what to say or not know the right word, is that not okay? Or, you mean on stage? Yeah. Yeah, I could totally do that if I was braver. Right. To me, the silence is a brave thing. You know, like just holding it, I don't do that very well. That's why I've always been weirded out by actors. I don't know if I can tell people you're an actor. By <laughs> actors who can hold like those intense moments, like just seeing The Revenant with, with Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. I watched it three times already. It's just totally unbelievably insane. And his ability to hold intensity and just be there i uh, can't wait till i can do that do you do you not think there's a, a weight or do you do you think there's a power in non-verbal verbal conversation though if a you talk about verbal or non-verbal non-verbal because you yeah, spoke absolutely. about the energy like definitely the transfers of energy yep. which could be with uh physical spiritual definitely um yeah, Music, and, and, I, and they nature. say ninety percent of communication is nonverbal, right? And so I would go that and that. When I heard that statement, I go, I can go to any country in the world, right? Without needing to speak the language, I don't mm -hmm. need a translator, I don't need a whatever. Ninety percent yeah. is nonverbal. The other ten percent is a waste of time. So I did, I did a, a motorcycle trip through all every country in Central America with a group of my friends, and I didn't speak any Spanish. Right. I could just, I just, and I did never went without food or couldn't find a bathroom or I could always. Get there, because so there is something really powerful about that. I wonder what that would the look verbal. like. It makes me want to have like a day where I don't say words, especially for someone like yourself. Yeah, that would so, be. so talking about like traveling and and um, venturing to different cultures and language being your tool, being mm -hmm. your kind of sense of communication. Has has there ever been like like you say a lang like the language barrier, or where you've had to use an interpreter? Have has there ever been an occasion? Yeah, I'm a very introverted traveler. Right. When I travel, I completely shut down. So now it's harder when I travel for work because then I'm traveling and I'm expected to like talk to people. Mm. But my wife, that's what my wife hated when we first started traveling together is I, I, I would just say, okay, I'll see you when we get there. I don't want to talk to people. I don't talk to people on airplanes. There's something about travel that I put, I get myself in like a tube. So then when I go to other countries or I'm in other places or I love to walk around by myself, I wake up mm. early before anyone, I always ask for more time. So I'm in Hong Kong and I cruise by myself for isn't that so interesting that the boy that wanted to go up to anyone and say, hey, what are you doing, mm -hmm. now travels and wants to not communicate? Yeah, and maybe, I mean, now that you ask that, maybe it's because I don't have a lot of, like, silence with people in my life. 
that I love a place where I have the excuse of a language barrier to just not talk to people. Mm-hmm. I, but it's also why I love New York. I, I will go out in New York and I will just be, mm-hmm. and I will cruise by myself and I will wake up early before meetings and just go, I'm going to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge and I'm going to ride all these trains and I'm going to walk around and sit at coffee shops. And I love, people probably feel bad for me at coffee shops by myself. I love it. Mm-hmm. I just love sort of the silence of all that. So what instigated the move from this small town in Ohio mm-hmm. to being here today in Los Angeles? I always... This big kind of city. Yeah, totally. So I grew up very alternatively. Mm-hmm. My parents never sent me to school because my mom said that public education was brainwashing and crowd control. So if, uh, my parents handed me a stack of books and a practice test for the state exam and said, do all your work, don't mm-hmm. screw up this test, and you don't have to go to school, which is an awful, awful place. But if you screw wow. this up, you're going to have to go to school. Mm-hmm. So I got to spend winters in Colorado with my aunt and uncle. Mm-hmm. Again, another sleepy town where no, after dark, nothing happens. Right. Then there's another city in Naples called, or city in Florida called Naples. We mm-hmm. would go there. Again, another sleepy town. Nothing happens. Right. But I got the, the travel. I was constantly, we were constantly in motion. I was always looking forward to another trip, to another thing. So then as I got older, I got to go to places like Chicago and Indianapolis and Cincinnati, which to me were huge cities. Right. And then I got to go to New York City. And I think it was, I boiled this back to this, when I finally drove across the bridge into New York City, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, cool. This is what I've been waiting for my whole life. These are all humans. They're all relating to each other. And they're all doing things that are cultural. I guess that would be the only word. And I don't mean to insult the pl- other places where I grew up. They were cultural too. Yeah. But culture, like pe- humans together diversity. creating things and making mm-hmm. art and diversity. And not everyone was white, which my family was really diverse, but all mm. the environments like Vail and Naples and Ohio, very, mm. very Anglo in terms of the people. And so as I just made a decision the first time I went to New York, I was like, okay, as soon as I'm done. So I spent a year and a half out of college. I stayed in Ohio mm. and I was like, I got to go. And so I almost moved to New York. It was between New York or LA and I had a friend in LA and mm. I, my friends in New York were raging alcoholics. So I was like, don't think that's going to be a good environment for me. So let's do LA first. So I came right. to LA and uh, had great friends and found Mosaic as a community. And was there something about like having a different conversation, like or in this big kind of buzzing city that was a draw for you? Yes, or was it people the knowledge or used to make fun of me. They blamed it on me being homeschooled mm-hmm. because I wanted to talk to everybody at school. And in, when I went to a college, I went to a small college, thirty five hundred students. Everybody eats lunch in the same cafeterias. Uh-huh. I would not commit to a seat. Because I didn't want to sit at a seat with five people because then at about 15 minutes in, they've all said whatever they're going to say. And you wanted to then know what jumped Then I'm over at this table and I'm at that table <laughs> and they're like, oh, you're just binging on humans because you were homeschooled. It's like I still had more friends than them being a homeschooled kid than they did at their school. Uh-huh. I just had this thirst for humans. It wasn't like I didn't have friends and then all of a sudden now I have humans. Yeah. I, was, I went to prom at three different high schools. My dad built a second driveway in our house for all of our friends who came over. So for a homeschooled kid, we were pretty... My sister and I, we just had lots of friends who all went to different schools. We were sort of unleashed in that way. Mm-hmm. So I think L.A. was sort of like that school cafeteria. Right. When I first like, oh, my gosh, I don't even have to, I don't have to drive 20 <laughs> minutes to get friends. Right. They're all here. And you can have neighbors and you can – and I would never lived in an apartment building. I would live, always lived in houses. Mm. And I was like, oh, wow, I could just knock on this door right here. I could just see this guy every day. Like, you know, I just felt like I was – I was, humans were like the exciting thing for me. It was amazing. And were you suddenly having different conversations to what you'd had before? I was amazed at how different people's worlds were. Because even a person, even if a person is unique, Mm -hmm. the uniqueness in the worlds that I lived with were very homogenous. They still pretty much went to church or were Catholic when they grew up. They still pretty much had both the same parents who are still married to each other. They still pretty much were born and raised in America. Mm-hmm. They were still pretty much that. So to come here and my first neighbor was Colombian and had only lived in the States for 12 months. Uh, my next neighbor was Iranian. My next neighbor was Armenian, an older gentleman who had, his parents had brought him here right after the genocide in Armenia. Like it was a very, all of this kind of history of the world, I felt like was, I was full of conversations with people who were not. You were like, Bingo. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was, yeah, it was like, it was constant. And my friends would make fun of me. Like, you just can't come to dinner because I would bring a random. I was just like, yeah, this guy needs, hey, this guy, you can have all my friends because mm-hmm. I'm, 
going to keep making more and more of them. Cause and I'm a city like Los Angeles, which f I feel is a quite a transitory city, you know, people huge. come and go. People are in your yep. life for like th three or four months, myself included. And then because of the entertainment industry sure. being very focused here, then something shooting in Vancouver or something yeah. shooting in South Africa. And that's and you where gone. LA is like your base still. I find that a lot of people will move to LA for two, three years and then go, oh, I really like Austin or I really like Nashville. I like New York. I really like Chicago. And mm. they're out. So what's nice is if you're, I've been in LA 11 years now. Mm. If you're in LA for 11 years, you have friends all over the country, all right. over the world, because they moved to London or they moved to Buenos Aires or they moved to Rio. They're just gone. Mm -hmm. And now you're like, I can pretty much go to any city. Right now, I could go to any major city in America and there's a friend from LA who moved there. Mm. It's just because you're right, people move. So you Because like you had an initial conversation with someone at some point in a random coffee shop yep. in Los Angeles looking for your silence. Yeah, exactly. Gosh, gosh. So um, coming back to kind of the original question, what does conversation mean to you? That's a great question. I think it means connection. I think it, I think conversation means you are we are creating a bond that our conversation will lead to. I, I'm also not like I don't enjoy small talk mm -hmm. as a whole. I want to know personal things about your life, and if I can't get there, I just assume it's not ever going to go there. So that's what I've had to learn is like you have people have to trust you before they tell you personal things. Mm -hmm. But I'd, I I not one for small talk very often. That gets boring. Small talk's great, but it better, it's got to open the door. But there was something further. in you that wanted to share conversations yes. with people who you were curious about or who inspired you or had interesting stories to tell. Like what part of, of you wanted to share or, or even start yeah. those conversations? I was just fascinated. I'm still fascinated by humans. I love being in places where there's interesting people doing interesting things. I love at, I love finding people that people don't know well or don't know about and like getting to ask them things and find things out about their life like I just have so much joy in that and me and I feel more this is bizarre maybe but I mm. feel more energized as a person the more I connect to other humans like that's not tiring for me. That's not exhausting for me. I thought about that today because I go to this CrossFit gym mm -hmm. and the big bay door is open. Well, people are walking by all the time and everyone is just sort of ignoring each other and uh, you're putting weights on a bar and then you're getting ready for the next workout. And they do. They pause and they look over. It's everything I can do to not be like, you should check this out. This right. is so you should come in. There's no every form of connection. Yeah. I, I, you're just going to look at me. We're going to look at each other and then you're going to walk away. That's like, I, I have to stop myself from that. And yet when you travel... That's exactly what you're saying you kind of do. Yeah, but maybe because I know I'm never going to, I don't know, maybe because I know we'll, we're in a, we're never going to be together again. So I don't, that's a really interesting question. I'm a hypocrite. I don't know what to do about now. I've, I got to think about no, that. No, it's, it's just interesting that you, you would take a risk on complete strangers in that environment, but you put yourself in a certain environment and it, I wonder what the, the huh. cost would be for you. I would just energy. Right. I don't, I wouldn't want to give energy unless I knew. And I think that's maybe part of why I don't like small talk. Because if you're just going to small talk with me, then I know this isn't going to go further. So I'm sort of done. But I walk into, like, my friend has seats on the floor at the Clippers. Mm -hmm. And when I go with him, we, then we go in this Lexus club or whatever. There's like a secret place. It's everything I can do not to walk up to a dude and go, What's up, dude? Jelly beans. And I literally, I walk through the room and I just start talking to people and there's like rappers in there or like, they look like rappers. I don't recognize them, but mm -hmm. they look like hip hoppers or they look like, and every, everyone's just kind of standing around waiting for someone to host. Mm -hmm. So I do, I have every compulsion in me is to walk through and go, hey, do you guys know each other? Hey, like I just want to walk through and do it. But when I'm in the arena, mm -hmm. I have no desire to talk or say to anything to anyone. Because I, I think because I assume, yeah, this is, there's 20,000 people here or 15,000 people here. I don't have any... But I get into that room and I go, oh, okay, hey, I'm gonna make a friend, you know. So, like, so it's it's not it's not even a size thing. No, and I think like if I travel to Hong Kong, I don't ever expect to actually talk to or make a friend anywhere. But I have, I've like, I have friends that I've. You are a total hypocrite. Been I know <laughs> I am. Just I don't this. know what's wrong with me. Maybe it's. <laughs> no, it's nothing wrong. It's no, just I don't know why that go. is. I do, and it, sometimes it turns on and sometimes it turns off. And I've been to events where I literally go, I'm over it. I don't want to be there here. I don't want to do this. So you're getting something from being in conversation with people. Do you, yes. you, do you know what that is? Energy. Right. 
And maybe that's why I've, why I'm deciding who I'm talking to. And maybe there's something to that. I'm gaining, without sounding too voodoo or weird, mm-hmm. I'm talking to someone because our conversation is going to generate an energy that I'm going to slingshot out of. If I have to have a conversation with someone that's going to drag, pull on me, which is always what an airplane conversation is, <laughs> where you're like, oh, geez, please don't. I just, I do, I, I'm a hypocrite in the sense of when somebody wants to talk to me on a plane about things, I'm always like, <laughs> even my wife, like for some reason, I, I don't want to know why, why would I lift up my headphones and I give that annoyed look so she doesn't <laughs> talk to me. Right. I have something about it, but then we get out into the terminal and it's like, let's go. I just, I don't want to talk on the plane. I don't want to talk to a stranger. So you choose where to spend your conversation currency. There's, there's yeah, some sort great. of barometer. Yeah, it's true. And I think it's totally measured by... I haven't been aware of it until this conversation, but I think it's all related to energy. If I feel like it's depleting me, I don't do it. Mm. I, where I, I'm fully energized by being sort of a, I, I feel like the invisible man when I go to a city like New York or Hong Kong and walk around by mm. myself. I'm invisible. No one's trying to talk to me. No one's looking at me. They don't care who I am. And I don't know anyone. Mm. So I think maybe that's also part of it. I was, I was in a small town, every coffee shop, everything you walk into, you know somebody. Right. In LA, you've been here 11 years. You start talking to people. You kind of go to the same places all of mm-hmm. us we're gonna run into people we say hi to or who mm-hmm. say hi so maybe that's the other cool th- the anonymity of it is just so fascinating where you can just walk through and be like hey it's a choice and yeah. when you could be an, an anonymous you you just sort of go i'm an anonymous person and i'm gonna mm. just draw the energy of this city and this place and well, also as a as a man you make things happen like you're a doer mm-hmm. you, you really yes. are and it's it's so impressive but you're a woman you, you're a doer you're, too very true. Okay, I'm yeah. not denying You're that. You're a doer. But in the kind of exchange of energy, I'm sure the conversations you've had normally or could end up in an opportunity to make something happen. For sure. And I don't mean that in a in a kind of um uh, like Scrooge way, as in like you're you're trying to make things happen for oh, yourself. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Like I'm, I'm an agent or something. N- not yeah. not I mean like on the, on some level you're open to a conversation leading to something. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I think, like, I love, like, I just did a tour through Australia earlier this year. Mm. And I just loved walking around Brisbane and Melbourne and just being like, I don't ever need to see these people again. I'm, I almost feel like maybe I'm off the hook. Well, you must need that. If if, if you spend a lot, right? yeah, yeah, there's 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 got to be a cost in constantly kind of yeah. verbal connection and 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 getting sure. and, and that exchange For on sure. some level I guess there's got to be a a, a a balance which but I'm also weird like I pick people and I don't know why it happens I don't mm. even know if it's a conscious thing where I just go yeah we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in that person's life for the rest of our lives unless you they decide not to like uh, this couple I thought of them earlier they walked up to me at, at Mosaic mm. and asked me hey we do our wedding told me a little bit about their story who they were mm-hmm. just as soon as they walked up I literally thought I'm a, we're going to be friends mm-hmm or, or I'm just going to be their friend. So I was like, sure, I'll do your wedding. I don't do weddings. I get asked to t- It would be every weekend of my life if I yeah, officiated a wedding. So mm-hmm. I just tell everybody no, and I tell people I don't do weddings. And I, I, it was I like an immediate yes. Even I as a like, guest? I know, yeah. No, I don't. Cause you I just don't go, do weddings. I've done over 150, maybe something yeah. higher than that. And I just, uh, unless it's like a person I grew up with or that I have you know, mm. am related to or have to do it where mm. I would be bad. But I immediately just said yes. Like there was something about them. I was like, I'm gonna, we're gonna be friends. Mm-hmm. So there, there's that. Maybe that's what it is, and why I mm-hmm. connect and reach out to people. I don't know. What What age did you become a pastor in in Ohio? It's crazy. I um, came to faith mm-hmm. and personalized the faith that my family had had, and that I'd grown up Catholic for so long when I was mm-hmm. about 16. And I think I spoke for the first time when I was 17. So how did it feel for you as a 17 year old to feel like you were influencing or on some level responsible for what your congregation were hearing how many people yeah. were you speaking well to when i first time? started speaking i started speaking to younger kids like junior high kids high school kids you know and in churches they start you on everybody yeah. as you grow you get to start to you always get to talk to the younger people who were even more probably hanging on every word you're oh they were awesome i mean say. i had a blast with it and i could be funny and i realized like i love this and i really enjoy it when mm-hmm. i was 19 i got to give my first talk to a room of adults mm-hmm. and it was a you know, a few hundred each service. And I, d- I don't, I don't ever, I don't think I realized the weight of what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I just remember thinking it was, a, it was a, it was a creative act for mm-hmm. me. I get to create a talk mm-hmm. 
that hopefully that to this day, decades later, people walk up to me and they go, Hey, I was there for that talk. And I remember these three points and I remember this, like, I, I just, I didn't see it as I'm taking full responsibility because mm -hmm. in, in that space, or even now when I, when I do talks, I don't see as I'm taking responsibility. I, I know I see that as theirs. I see it as I'm going to make something. And I, and that's what I, I put on my Instagram. I made a talk for you mm -hmm. and I'm going to give it. And I hope that it is beautiful to you. And I hope it's as beautiful as it was to make. I regularly, when I'm putting talks together mm -hmm. or even when I'm writing, I'm working on this book and I'm working on a few other things and, I, I regular weeping over a computer. I mean, people probably think I'm breaking up over text. Just the other, I just, it's regular. I give myself the chills. <laughs> Not like what I'm saying is so amazing, but the what investment. I feel like what I'm making is turning out be more beautiful than I thought it was. How how mindful are you of of every kind of word when you come to oh, to speak? Bad. bad. And I'm, I'm, I'm like you, were, like, you wouldn't know it because I'm still overly sloppy. critical on yeah. yourself, or and I'm sloppy when I talk. I'm sloppy with my grammar, and I sloppy with my word and my pronunciation of things. I wish I could talk like you. I'm Mrs. Malaprop, <laughs> and I, and I can't. It's so painful to listen back to a talk. I'll literally sit in the green room after I speak mm -hmm. and go, "I screwed up the order of that sentence." Like I have that mm. one. Not because I want to be perfect, but because I'm afraid this thing I made now has a right. has a scar on it somehow, which right. makes it imperfect and makes it wonderful. And I know what people will say, you know, it's just you and just be vulnerable. But and I want to make that it voice beautiful. In your head yeah. goes, nah, I, I wanna... just made a bowl instead of a plate. And yeah, my intention like, was to make the plate. You would say, yeah, it needs to be imperfect and beautiful, unless it was a, an airplane. You don't mm -hmm. want that to be imperfect and vulnerable and broken. And I want the stuff I make, I want it to give people something they can do something with in their life the same way it changes me. And mm -hmm. I want it to be like a helicopter, an airplane. Mm -hmm. And you don't want a helicopter to be like, oh, it's just imperfect and wonderful. Mm -hmm. You want it to work and you want it to be perfect and you want it to be beautiful and you want it to take you somewhere. So knowing that gift that you want to give to someone and the, the energy exchange you get back when you're doing a live talk, how is it for you to then venture into a podcast where oh. there are no faces, yeah. that energy's yeah. not there, right. it's 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 you and that All critical voice and... and yeah everything else it's tough and you could probably tell having listening to all the the podcast episodes you could probably tell my friend she's amazing her name's katrina she's mm -hmm. she practices um buddhism and energy and spirituality and she's like sort of teaches people things and she came up to me and she said i love your podcast and i know i'm and i just okay but started apologizing i'm so sorry i'll figure it out i'll get better at it you did I'm, that to me too when we first yeah came. i did that's right because <laughs> i'm not as good at being alone as i am in a room because the minute i'm in a room better things will happen Mm -hmm. and better energy is happening. And I just remember telling her, I'm so sorry. She said, no, I don't love your podcast for the content. You're right, it's rough. <laughs> I was like, oh, I thanks. Love that's honesty. what I needed. That's she okay. said, I love your podcast because I can tell it's a practice for you and it's making you more vulnerable and it's making you more bold. And she goes, I feel like every podcast, every episode I've listened to, I'm listening to you grow and get better and find your voice. Mm -hmm. And she said, that's what's beautiful to me. Mm -hmm. And I, that to me was the most moving thing because I thought, oh my gosh, that is what I'm doing. I'm finding that voice which i think makes me better You're on risking. stage yeah. yeah and it and it's not i'm not doing it just for the sake of vulnerability or just for the sake of me putting my thoughts out there i really want to get good at creating those things in different mediums because they make me better at the other thing so mm -hmm. that's why i love that's why i started the monthly live podcast because i thought it can't all be you need, you need to get something back i gotta <laughs> please give me <laughs> one room where people are gonna laugh and talk and smile and cry and right i just i want i need to feel that with people because even, it's bizarre, even I would have more energy speaking to a room of 50 people than l sitting in a room by myself with a headset and thousands and thousands of people are going to listen. Mm -hmm. But you forget, and some I've been on podcasts that had 250,000, 300,000 episode downloads. Mm -hmm. And you, my, I told my friend that. I said, yeah, you know, it's crazy. That's what that talk was downloaded 300,000 times. Mm -hmm. And he goes, that's three of the largest stadiums in the world all at once. And that's just like mind-blowing to me because in your mind you go yeah i was just talking to a room of 100 people mm -hmm. or how wherever you were and so there's there, there is that bizarre thing that technology gives you the ability and it doesn't feel that way hopefully people who are driving in their prius or walking in their car working out to this conversation mm -hmm. it it feels like just the three of us as opposed to feeling like it's the three of us and however many other thousands of people are listening so just to finish what do you think on what are we now? February the 11th, 2016? It's the 11th, yeah, something like that. 
what do you think is an important conversation that has needs to be addressed or has oh, yet to, to happen? Yeah. Oh, man. Whether it's the person in their Prius or whether it yeah. is those three stadiums of people. Yeah. I Man, there's so many things I go to. Probably my initial thought is the conversations that I think are we're already having as a culture and as a community. I think there's a collective conversation we have to ask about the planet. I, I if I have a concern for something, I have a concern that that we're just going to destroy her. Mm. Not to sound like a left winger or whatever. My my <laughs> my very good friends who are older would say they don't believe in climate change. They don't believe in all this stuff, and I just go, oh my goodness! Like I just feel like we're hurting the planet. So I. That would be one question is like, do we, but it's, it's connected to that. The question I would, the conversation I hope we are all having is, aren't we all here together? It's the, the Carl Sagan pale blue dot conversation that just goes, we're all it. And I'm having a conversation yesterday with a guy who grew up in Israel and he says, yeah, you need to go to Israel. And he said, but be careful because the Arabs will, oh, oh, you know, they won't stab a, they won't stab a, a, a tourist. They'll only stab an Israeli. And I said, oh, okay, well, who do they stab? And he said, they stab the policemen because they can't tell who's Israeli unless they're uniformed. I said, how are we in a world where, as human beings, you cannot even tell the difference between each other mm-hmm. and we're willing to cause harm and pain and, 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 and that, the work that I do with kids in the Adopt Together space mm. and World Adoption Day and that, I just go, how can we live in a world where there's all this and we... I would just want the conversation. Aren't we all in this together? Aren't we all here together? Mm-hmm. Doesn't it matter that the thing you buy was made by a slave and they dumped 2,000 gallons of waste mm-hmm. into the water that someone else will drink? Like, we are all, it just, it, the, the, the interconnection of all things mm-hmm. to me is something that we have to evolve our conversation into. And mm-hmm. the political spectrum right now of, of the two party system and the, uh huh, nah, uh huh, mm-hmm. nah, it just feels like, I just it just mm. makes me nauseous. It's like it's I guess all of it. In a know? society where we're conditioned and and there's separation on yeah, some level has occurred totally. where where I guess all of a sudden y- you you and I have always been one and the same. Mm-hmm. And whatever y- you do to yourself you're doing to me and vice vice right. versa totally. and the consequences of those actions and like you say on that larger scale being aware that all for one and one for all. Yeah, we're all here together. And this is the only home and place and life any of us have. So to me, it has to, that's what I hope we get to, whether it's religious people or mm-hmm. or political people or people who don't fit into a category who just go, mm-hmm. man, that guy who cut me off on the street or the girl who needs something from me or the people who suffer in the world. We're all in this together. It's such a pleasure to converse with you and thank you for always encouraging conversation in my household and and hopefully to the three stadiums full of people who listen to your podcast as well. Um, thank you, Hank Faulkner. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You were an incredible host. Oh. This is great. I'm going to change my mind and I'm no longer going to invite... I tried. I risked. I don't <laughs> want to invite guests on the, ho- on the show anymore. I'm just going to invite hosts. Come and host the show. And see what happens. You were wonderful. You're awesome. And thank you. I'll record an intro and tell everybody who you really are. No, sh- <laughs> it's about you, Hank. You yeah. have to be okay with okay. it being about Deal. you. Deal. <laughs> well, should this be Laura? We'll just be, we won't say who. Thank you so much. Pleasure.